1: Scott Graham's National Park Mysteries combine murder, mayhem and mysticism in spectacular landscapes while also managing to embrace a keen awareness of environmental and social justice issues. It's a heady brew that's winning him a fast-growing audience. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and in today's Pinge Reading podcast, Scott talks about why he chose to set his five-book series around an archaeologist sleuth named Chuck and his Latina wife Janelle, all in some of the United States' most iconic landscapes. But before we get to Scott, just a reminder, the links for all the talking points in this episode can be found in the show notes on the Joys of Binge Reading website. That's where you can connect with Scott's book, See the links for his recommendations for other authors you'll love, and find out how to connect with him on social media. And while you're there, leave us a comment. We love to hear your opinions and promise to reply as soon as you send us them. But now, here's Scott. Hello there, Scott, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us.
2: Hi, Jenny. I'm happy to be here.
1: Look, you made a reputation for yourself as a journalist and a non-fiction writer before you started on the fiction. I'm just interested in what made you switch to fiction and was there something that like a once upon a time moment where you felt that urge to change to writing fiction?
2: Well, the truth is I I was a failed fiction writer for a long time before I was finally a successful published fiction author. So, uh, no, I've had the dream of being a fictional storyteller pretty much my entire adult life. And I've also enjoyed just the writing process my entire life as well. And so I could make a living as a journalist, as a business um, writer, and, um, and I was able to then publish uh, some, some nonfiction books all along. I was always getting up early in the morning and doing some fiction writing just for myself because I loved that idea of being a storyteller so much and uh, it took me probably like many fiction authors four or five manuscripts that didn't go anywhere that came close came closer and closer before i got what i feel like i'm good enough to find a true publisher and get rolling with my actual published fiction
1: that's fantastic so you've now got five books in your national park series and this starring a an archaeologist called chuck bender and his latina paramedic wife janelle What made you decide on that theme and setting?
2: I'm from a small town that's named Durango in the far southwest corner of Colorado in the southwestern United States. And that area is a hotbed of archeological discovery and archeological old civilizations that are around here. And so I was raised here in Durango, I'm familiar with are the, all the archaeological discoveries that have made, been made here and been made throughout the southwestern United States. And I'm fascinated by it, to be honest. And I thought, you know, readers are probably going to be fascinated by that as well. And so I just built that in as one of the, the through themes or the, the, the key aspects of the series, that there is always an archaeological discovery, um, an archaeological dig, an archaeological survey that is ongoing as part of the the plot for each of the books.
1: Now, you're a self-proclaimed outdoorsman and your love of the natural environment comes through very strongly. Lots of reviewers comment on it. Uh, Each of the books features one particular national park. It might be Yosemite, Grand Canyon, Yellowstone. there have been a series in different parks. And the most recent one is set in Utah in Archers National Park and it's titled Archers Enemy. What draws you to the landscape?
2: Again, I'm so fortunate to have been raised in a family by my parents who were real outdoors people and who loved exploring the national parks in the Western United States. So I was dragged around in the old station wagon to all those national parks when I was a kid. And then I was doubly fortunate to be able to return to my hometown and to raise, my wife and I raised our children Um, in Durango, which is really in in the heart of national park country for the Western United States. And so I have had a a love of national parks and the Western National Parks in America specifically, that was uh, kind of put into place by my parents and then was put into place um, by my being able to share these wonderful landscapes with my own children as they were raised. And so In reality, what I'm doing is simply very comfortably sharing my love for these places um, with with a a greater audience. And so it's just basically a pleasure for me to set my stories in these places. In addition, the national parks in America um, and the public lands in Western America are constantly under threat because there's always money to be made off of developing places that are undeveloped. And so I also then have the opportunity through writing about the national parks to call attention in each book to a specific either social justice or environmental justice issue that is specific to that park. And so again, that's a part of my love of the national parks and my, my hopes for their protected future that comes that I'm able to share in my books.
1: Yeah, so in Arch Enemy, it's actually seismic damage caused by mining, you know, deep deep ground mining that is uh, affecting some of the the natural features.
2: That's right, and 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 again, people need to understand, as I think all people who read mysteries and, and know mysteries do, that what you're doing with a murder mystery, of course, is taking things and setting them over the top. Okay, so I've got a bumper truck that is a seismic truck that is that is doing seismic work. Outside the park that has been allowed by the powers that be to, in the case of the the story that I'm telling, the fictional story, get too close to the park to the point where it may well have been the cause of the collapse of one of the most iconic or one of the iconic arches. They're really all iconic in Arches National Park. But one of those natural arches that the National Park is known for. And that is the inciting incident that sets off that uh, particular story that's set in arches and you're but but the reality is that um such a seismic truck doing that much damage that it might do that to an arch is probably you know infinitesimally unlikely and yet the idea that these national parks in the western united states are under threat from um, extractive industry development is absolutely true. And so I'm just basically taking some of these threats that are there and expanding upon them in a way that makes for what I hope is a is a fascinating and interesting story.
1: Sure, and then you've got the social justice aspect of it. As we've mentioned, Janelle is Latina. There's quite a lot of little bits of Spanish dotted into the book. It's quite clear that she's a very well-integrated character in the book. She isn't just there. For look, so to speak, and I gather you've got quite a strong background in Spanish culture as well.
2: Yes, I do. And in, in the uh, the the culture that I've been raised in here in southwestern United States is really a kind of a tricultural place. There are the indigenous peoples, the tribal peoples who have been here, you know, long before Caucasians showed up. But then the first real Caucasians, the Europeans, who showed up were the Spaniards through the the. Uh, um, coming up the Rio Grande Valley in the 1500s, at about the same time that the, the original pilgrims were coming across to the eastern coast of the United States from northern Europe, the, the Spaniards were, were coming up from the south. And so they have left an indelible mark across the southwestern United States before then the the, the European manifest destiny um, crossing of the, of the uh, covered wagons and whatnot brought in more of a northern European culture to this part part of the world. And so we've got this wonderful tricultural world that I was raised in that I wanted to share with my readers because the books that I'm writing are based in the Western United States where these three cultures are still kind of coexisting and learning to get along um, and hopefully growing together and becoming more aware of one another. And so I've got my Caucasian uh, archaeologist who then um, marries a Latina wife who comes into his world with two Latina, in his case, stepchildren. And not only is he having to learn to deal with being a a sudden father to these children and a sudden husband uh, to a wife that after, after a lifetime of being kind of an established bachelor and an established loner, he's also having to learn to recognize um, these these other cultural values that have that have suddenly come into his world and learn to deal with those as well. And so it's been a really fun progression that I've been able, I feel like, to put him on that I've enjoyed going to where there wasn't so much Spanish in the earlier books. And in particular, Chuck himself didn't really use any Spanish. And now by the fifth book, he is just kind of using Spanish as well with his wife in the same way that she's using Spanish with him. and And so I feel like that's the real progression that would occur in this relationship. And it's been one that I've purposely built in order to share with um, folks that aren't perhaps familiar with the Southwest and the Western United States, how that multiculturalism plays out here.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I gather that you've you've found a publisher who's very much behind the environmental uh, push, you know, things like species eradication and Yellowstone and those sorts of issues. Tell us a bit about your publisher.
2: I have to tell you, I feel like I'm the luckiest mystery author on the planet in terms of where I've landed with my mysteries. I, uh, at the end of my kind of nonfiction writing run, when I really, really finally put myself to the task of wanting to be a successful author of fiction and to be a mystery author, um, I won the National Outdoor Book Award with my last nonfiction book, which was a, a, a pretty big award, which gave me the opportunity to very likely have also I think the quality of what I was writing fictionally was getting to the point where I probably could have won a, a contract with a publisher back east, one of the big publishers out of New York City. And at the same time, I heard about this um, smaller publisher that was just getting going that's called Tory House Press. And Tory House Press is the only Uh, non-profit environmental publisher in the Western United States. And they're a mission-driven publisher that is uh, specifically involved in the mission of preserving and, and talking about and producing literature about the American West's public lands and the dangers that they face from development and the importance that they play to Um, the, the Western environment of the United States and that iconic environment that all of us think about when we think of the old Westerns that we've seen, that is what this publisher is about preserving and protecting. And so I got to come in as an author. And at the time that I got to know them, they were a brand new publisher about six or seven years ago who were really involved in publishing literary fiction and very literary oriented nonfiction. And I was able to say to them, you know what? I've got something here that I think would be of real value to you because I'm talking about producing entertainment-oriented fiction that's, that's aimed at people who may not be nearly as familiar with these issues as the audience that Torrey House Press had reached to that point. And so they bit. They came with me and they said, yeah, that's a great idea. This gives us an opportunity to reach out to a different audience than we've been reaching out to before. And the result has been this wonderful team between myself and Torrey House Press where we've grown together. And Torrey House Press now, I I continue to be one of their best-selling authors with with all the books that I've got coming out. They're also, as a result of their growth, getting to pull on bigger and bigger-name environmental authors – and and um, and so we're kind of both been growing together, and it's just been a wonderful relationship, and one I'm very proud of, and very proud to be a part of.
1: That's fantastic. I get that they are involved. I think in some political action as well, aren't they? That they, they don't just publish books. So. No, they're
2: they're active. They're they're a full on what you would call an activist organization, which. Um, if you're a nonprofit organization with a mission, yes, they are actively pursuing that mission. And they have been integral in, in uh, for example, one of, their, their key, one of the key things they were able to do was produce a, a very quickly a, a book that provided essays about a very specific piece of land that 25 indigenous tribes in the southwestern United States had come together and asked the previous American presidency administration to preserve. And so that was reaching out to Barack Obama, uh, President Obama, before he ended his term of office to say that he should use his power as president through the Antiquities Act to preserve this particular um, very large uh, chunk of southeastern Utah as a national monument. And these tribes wanted it preserved because it's the, it's the home place and the and the the birthplace and the burial place of all of their forefathers It's kind of a high-rise high, rise, high uh, area called uh, the Colorado Plateau a high portion of the Colorado River Basin uh, that that everything falls away from that into these various tribal communities and these were foraging areas where these people hunted and lived and died uh, for centuries before uh, the white man showed up and my publisher was able to, pull these essays together that were written by all different constituencies, present them to the Obama administration, and convince the administration then to pull the trigger on creating that national monument literally two weeks before the end of the uh, the Barack Obama presidency. He preserved what's now known as the Bears Ears National Monument. And, and I'm proud to say that my publisher played a key role in, in having that preservation occur.
1: That's fantastic. Now, I, I know that this thing about access to public lands is close to your heart because you've talked about a drive that you did with your family in Texas where you found it very difficult to even access parkland. Talk about that a little bit.
2: Yeah, it was absolutely fascinating to me. Uh, you would think I should have known better, right? I'm an adult. I've been living out here in the West all these years. I didn't really know the history of Texas, which was that. Texas, of course, people, I did know, and many people know that the big state of Texas and southern, you know, south-central United States came into the United States as a result of bargaining through the Mexican-American War and, of course, pressure that the American government brought on the Mexican government, Um, but it came over to Mexico, and when it came over and became a state, one of the deals that made it become a state was that all of the lands that came over as part of Texas, were not preserved as public lands. None of them were preserved, virtually none, as public lands. But rather, they were all made private, and they were all turned over to the um, well, I shouldn't say private. They were turned over to the state government of Texas, basically the new state government of Texas in a semi-autonomous way. The state government of Texas immediately turned around and and because everyone you know was in each other's pockets, sold off all these massive tracts of lands to all the people who had the money to buy them back in the day, and the entire state of Texas basically became privatized. And so all of these big chunks of public lands that are we know of that are that we think of as these big beautiful open areas in the rest of the Western United States, in the case of Texas are all fenced off. And so the way I've traditionally traveled with my family was we would travel around the West, we would go into these national forests and these what are called Bureau of Land Management lands, and you could just pull off the road anywhere and camp and have a good time and hike. I thought we would do the same thing when I took my two young children and my wife and I headed down south into Texas. And instead, we went down there and found out everything was fenced off to us. We would look off at these beautiful scenes and these beautiful mountain ranges and every one of them had a no trespassing sign in front of it. And so It was a real learning experience for me to see what a state in the United States that really is, it's hooked on to my my home state of Colorado, and yet is so different because it has no public lands to go explore and access, how different a feeling that state was to be able to visit and travel in than all these other states that I had traveled in in the West in the past. And it was really a turning point for me. It was like, oh... This is why public lands are so important. This is why they should not be privatized. This is why they should not be sold off. We all own them in America as the general public. They're all open to us if we can preserve them.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, there's quite a strong community of Rocky Mountain writers who've got part of this um, ethos, isn't there? Like I'm thinking of Craig Johnson and CJ Box, a, a couple of the others that I know. Yes, yes. Do you work together much as a group?
2: I have been fortunate to basically count on them for support and to count on some of the bigger names. They've they've been wonderful about offering people like me, the smaller names, um, wonderful blurbs for my books. They've been extremely supportive in terms of when I talk to them at, at writers' conferences, giving me hints and giving me advice. Um, at this point, because I'm still, I feel, working my way into hopefully someday perhaps the echelon that some of the top Western writers are at, um, I can't consider myself kind of part of their team, but I, what I can tell you is I'm extremely um, appreciative of the welcome they have given me as, as a relative newcomer to this world and the support they've given me literally by reading my work and offering me wonderful reviews of my work that I've been able to use to help build my own audience
1: yes and I, I know that craig johnson who who's made his known na- name known for those who might not be familiar with his work with the t v series Longmire, which right. I think it's just finished after about seven seasons or so, but um he called your books one Part Mystery, one Part Mysticism, and one part Mayhem, which sounds like a great combination it's been a wonderful
2: book yeah. <laughs>
1: Would you agree with the mysticism bit? Oh,
2: absolutely. And I think, you know, I, I can't speak necessarily for Craig, but if I were to think about it in my own way, I think the mysticism is is really that multicultural aspect of what I have sought to build into each of my titles. The fact that um, I've really got, in addition to, through Chuck Bender's wife, Janelle, this this Latino culture that I'm trying to introduce to my readers. I've also really, in in, in pretty much every book involves some sort of an indigenous and tribal aspect to the books as well. And there truly is a mystical aspect to the way indigenous tribal peoples in the Western United States view their relationship with the landscape um, versus the way the traditional um, white European Caucasian may view their relationship to the world. And it's that mysticism that I try to really offer to my readers. One of the things I specifically do with every book is in that national park that that book is covering, I try to take that plot line away from the pavement in the national park and into some portion of that backcountry of the national park, because that's really what is both mythical and mystical about our national parks. And it's, Something that ninety percent of the people who visit America's national parks are unable to see. They they come to these places to 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 be on the pavement and to view the beautiful backcountry that is spread before them, but they don't have the wherewithal to go into that backcountry. And so, I one of the goals of the books is to take that plot line and take the reader into the backcountry that most people aren't able to visit in the national
1: park. That in Yosemite Fall, one of example of that. Um, tribal involvement was that you have Chuck, your archaeologist, investigating a historic murder. Two gold miners killed 150 years ago, the local people blamed, and now in contemporary times, a tribal trust is wanting this reinvestigated to see where, what really did go on. That's the kind of thing, isn't it, that you're talking about?
2: That's exactly what I'm talking about. And in that particular case, what's fascinating to me about that is it's based on that particular case is based on absolute truth. These miners did come into Yosemite Valley. Two miners were killed. And the indigenous peoples, the Awanichi people, the Yosemite people who were in the valley were blamed for their deaths. And they were then subsequently chased out of the valley by um militia from the state of California, the new, newly minted state of California. Um as a result of that inciting incident. And so, um, I went back and explored that incident. I actually visited the, there's a, a, an actual national park service library in Yosemite Valley that I spent a day at researching. There are the Yosemite archives that are located, um, in, in a, uh, climate, uh, protected, uh, Building inside a massive warehouse outside of the park that has all sorts of old maps and old documents that I was able to to visit, wearing a winter coat and wearing white white cotton gloves so that you didn't harm any of the of the materials that you were looking at. And I was able to specifically research that incident and then and then look at it from today's lens and recognize that the deaths of these two miners and the blaming of their deaths on the indigenous peoples who were in that valley very handily enabled uh the the gold mining interests of the time to move the indigenous people out at you know in a murderous way in order to suddenly then have this valley to at first explore for gold and when no gold happened to be in Yosemite Valley, then to look around and say, this is a beautiful place. We ought to turn it into one of America's first national parks.
1: Mm-hmm. So that's where John Muir comes in.
2: That's exactly mm-hmm. where John Muir comes. In. Yep.
1: Look, we're starting to run out of time a little, so let's just talk a little about Scott as reader. This podcast is called The Joys of Binge Reading, and we assume the people who listen to it are into doing a lot of reading. Tell us about your taste in fiction. What do you like to binge read or just read generally?
2: I'm... I'm I keep waiting to get tired of reading mysteries as, as I write mysteries and as I immerse myself in reading every other mystery that I possibly can to, to hopefully learn and and grow as an author of mysteries myself. And I'll be honest with you. I just, I don't get tired of it. And so in my case, I just continue to enjoy exploring new mystery series as well as established mystery series and just seeing how the masters do the craft.
1: And so who do you, who are you reading at the moment or who have you been reading recently
2: well, So some of the masters that I'm sure and, and I'll move quickly on to some of the less known because that's probably more important to your to your listeners but so the masters that I really respect are people like Tana French out of Ireland and um and then Louise Penny out of Canada two two amazing amazing authors um who just blow me away every time I read their work, and then um, and then to come closer to home, the names you mentioned are legitimately big names for for the reason that they are so good. And that would be uh, C.J. Box, Chuck Box, and um, Craig Johnson. And then someone who is not perhaps as well known to to your listeners, but who is really just just hitting on uh, uh, in a big way now with a standalone novel this year uh, is William Kent Krueger, and he writes about the um, Ojibwe people in upper Northern United States and in a wonderful way. And so his work is, is some that I just entirely respect. And then also the fact that Ann Hillerman, the daughter of famed, um, navajo reservation mystery author tony hillerman has taken over her father's her late father's mystery series and kind of crafted it as her own i think is wonderful and and and, uh a tribute to tony hillerman and also just a wonderful mystery series on its own so those are kind of some of the bigger names Uh, some of the smaller names i think are people you have and, and you know they're getting big themselves others that i'm going to mention like margaret mitsushima's um um Books are are just wonderful explorations of both a, a, a flawed central character, a uh, detective woman who has then got a canine traveler. She's got this wonderful dog, Robo. It's just so fun to read about. And then um, in, in my own area is the work of um, the woman in Montana, Christine Carbo, who is doing a series entirely based around Glacier National Park, which is on the Canadian border in northern Western United States.
1: Yes, we've had both Margaret and Christine on the show and they they were both lovely to talk to. Um, so, yeah, we'll make sure all of those links are in the in the show notes so that people can easily find the ones you're talking about. Yes, William Kett, William Kett Kruger has come to mind. I was just going
2: to say I'll mention one more real quick just because it is. I think you'll enjoy knowing about Chuck Greaves and your listeners will. And he has just joined me. He's been a very successful mystery author with Mysteries Set in Los Angeles. Uh, and now has just joined me at Tory with me at Tory house press as a fellow author and, um, has a book that's out. That's called church of the graveyard saints. That is a quasi mystery. you really, I guess it's really standalone. It stands as a mystery itself, although not necessarily a series mystery. And it really gives people a wonderful feel of the, uh, various politics that are at play with regard to public lands and, um, private development of those lands in the Western United States. And that's Church of the Graveyard Saints by Chuck Reeves.
1: Reeves, that would be probably R-E-E-V-E-S, is it?
2: Yes, it's G-R-E-A-V-E-S. And I believe your listeners will both enjoy his his you know humorous, really wonderful novels of, of a, uh, uh, I mean, just like I say humorous in a really insightful, smart, intellectual way of an uh, attorney uh, who falls into these murder mysteries in Los Angeles, as well as Church of the Graveyard Saints, his new more of a polemic political, uh, environmental mystery set here in the southwestern United States, where Chuck has moved from having been an attorney in Los Angeles. Now he, he lives near me here in the southwestern United States, and is now right, you know, setting his fiction here.
1: Well, that sounds fabulous. We are starting to come to the end of our time together, so circling around and looking back over your writing career at this stage when you take stock, if you were doing it all over again, is there anything that you would change?
2: You know, I, I, I have to tell you, as I, as I said, I feel so fortunate to be with the publisher I'm with now. For many years when I was writing my nonfiction, I had a wonderful agent in New York City who represented my interests extremely well. Um, I, I, I have to tell you, I have had a wonderful experience as an author, both of nonfiction and of fiction, and uh, I count myself lucky. I really do. I think the thing that if others are out there thinking about being authors themselves, that is important to understand is that don't don't get tied up and feel like you're going to be doing it for the money. The money, hopefully, is going to flow to your publisher if you do a good job for them because they're the ones taking the risk on you, but what I've come to is that I love to write. I get the opportunity to write, I get the opportunity to publish and share my writing with others, and that is the the most satisfying and wonderful thing I could ever imagine for myself as an author.
1: That's fantastic. I, yes, I think this, the publishing scene is changing in that respect, that quite a lot of mid-level authors are finding the words tougher than it used to be. Um,
2: it is true, and um it's you know musicians are finding the same thing yeah. it's it's kind of how the world it's it's you know somewhat how the world is going mm-hmm. and we you and i i think could probably spend an entire whole other podcast talking about that subject in particular so i you know so i was only speaking to the reality of it which is that um you Yes, there's always the chance you can break through and become and become uh, a very wealthy, famous author. But in the meantime, the, the wonderfulness of, of putting words together and telling stories is an end in itself that I have come to completely be comfortable with.
1: Yes, that's lovely. So what is next for Scott the writer? What have you got on your plate for the next 12 months, for 2020?
2: I've got two. I'm already. I've got kind of the next two mysteries underway and in progress for the series. The series has been growing steadily. Uh, it's it's also been really selling well with eBooks because of the fact that it has gotten to be enough books in the series that that the eBook readers are now kind of looking into it. eBook readers really like uh, mystery series where there's several books to to kind of sink their teeth into. Mm-hmm. And so as the series um, expands and grows. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at the next parks in the series. So I've got a book that is set entirely in the whitewater rafting scene of the Colorado River in Canyonlands National Park. Um, that's called Canyonlands Carnage that will come out next year. And then this year. I'm happy to report that just in a few months I've got Mesa Verde victim coming out, which is a book that is set in Mesa Verde national park, which is many people probably recognize it as one of the top national you know, world heritage sites on earth where the ancestral Puebloan people built those beautiful homes and villages underneath the cliffs in Southwestern Colorado, very near my home, and then abandoned them, uh, in the series of droughts in the 1200s. Yes, And, yeah. And so that that mystery that's set basically here in my backyard um, will go on presale in March and will be released in June. And it's a book that is all about this world that I've been raised in here in Durango, Colorado and in southwestern Colorado. And it's my favorite so far. And I can't wait for the, it to come out in a few months and see what its reception will be.
1: Oh, that's very cool. Now, do you like to interact with your readers? And if so, where can they find you, either in person or online?
2: Oh yeah, I'm, I'm the, you know that's the name of the game for all of us these days, and I love hearing from my readers. and in fact, I feel like I'm continuing to learn through every step of this process. And hearing from readers what they like and especially what they dislike is really helpful to me. They can reach me through my website, of course, which is Scott Franklin graham.com s-c-o-t-t franklin and graham g-r-a-h-a-m.com and my contact information is there i'm also active on twitter i'm active on facebook and i love it i just love having people reach out to me because it's what it's what we're doing all of us as authors are sitting in our little our little rooms with our computers hoping that that we will reach and touch readers with what we're working on and so i love hearing back from people and i have been very helped by what people have got given me as feedback because i am trying to do some political stuff i'm trying to do some environmental work and so there are people who have strong opinions about that and i love hearing them it's very helpful to me
1: look that's wonderful scott it really is Um, we'll make sure that the links for all of those websites and and connections on social media are also included in the show notes so Thank you so much for your time today. I'm sure that these novels will have a lot of interest for readers. So thank you so much again.
0: Thank you, Jane. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading.
1: The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at d c audio services at gmail.com that's D for Daniel C for Charlie audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes he's fast he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with our voiceovers are done by Abe raffles another gem of sound and screen Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter I think you'd agree that his voice is both light hearted and warm he is super easy to work with no matter what the job you'll find him at Abe A-B-E at pointandshoot.co.nz as I say full details in the show notes on the website that's it for now thanks for listening hopefully see you next week bye